So everyone, welcome to our Saturday Dhamma broadcast. When we talk about rebirth, when the, the topic of rebirth comes up, it often creates a fair amount of agitation. And to some extent well-deserved because Rebirth is not the right word to use when talking about the Buddhist concept of of the journey, I guess you could call it. Hard to even have a word. Samsara is the word the Buddha used, the wandering on. Chattunang arya satchanang yathabhutang adasana Not seeing the the four noble truths as they really are. We wander on. on a long journey from life, from birth to birth. So it sounds like the Buddha taught rebirth, but he never used a word that really meant rebirth, something being reborn, because nothing is reborn. There is the experience of birth again and again. But the thing that is born is a new thing. And that may seem a little bit of a nitpick, but it is important. It's important because it aligns with the truth, uh, the underlying truth of the experience. that actually we're born and die every day, every moment. I've said before, Buddhists don't believe in rebirth. We just don't believe in death either. And that's not exactly true because the death that we subscribe to is death every moment. 
Birth every moment, death every moment. A moment is born and dies. That's real. That's what you can experience, what you can see. The issue of what happens when the body dies is, of course, one of great spiritual concern. And the problem that a lot of people have is it's hard to believe that anything happens when you die. It's hard to believe that anything happens. Why should we believe that anything happens? That's a very good question. And I would say we have no reason to believe that anything happens when we die. No really good convincing reason to make us sure that this is going to happen or that's going to happen. The problem is, the contention is, and the, 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 the error is in our idea of what it means that, to say that nothing happens. Nothing happening is called the null hypothesis, and I've said this again and again. It's a scientific term, and it's useful to use such terms when talking about these things that seem to require faith and seem to fly in the face of science. So if we use scientific terms, the null hypothesis is basically saying that nothing happens. But if nothing happens when we die, what that means is that everything stays the same. And well, we know that's not true, that's not the case. We know that something changes, obviously. But we don't really understand the magnitude of that change, and we don't really have any evidence for the results of that change. It appears that at the moment of death, there's no more mental activity in the body, as far as we can judge that. And that's really where a big part of the problem comes from, is we don't have a good means of telling what sort of mental activity there is in the body anyway. And not really clear that mental activity is quote-unquote in the body ever it's not really a physical thing hard to determine what mental activity is so anyway to say that nothing happens is really just to say that the mind continues on and we have to find evidence for why that might not be the case and because we don't have that evidence it's actually not that much of a stretch to say that the mind continues to experience uh, just because the body, even though the body has stopped functioning. We have uh, examples of experiences where the body stops functioning anyway and the mind continues to function. It appears to be a plausible uh, possibility with evidence to back it up. So all of that's to say that it, it's plausible and it, it actually is the Buddhist take on things that the mind just continues to arise and cease. So we have to put that aside and not be so fixated on death and the idea of rebirth. Now, 
Death does change things for the mind, obviously, but it doesn't change things categorically in a categorically different way for the mind than any other traumatic, profound experience. Death is obviously a traumatic experience up into the moment of death, and there's no reason to think it wouldn't be traumatic after the fact, if there's anything to experience the after the fact. So it definitely is something that as Buddhists we worry about, but what we really are concerned with in Buddhism is our direction. And this idea is a way of really sidestepping any need to believe or, or come down on any side of the fence about this debate, I guess, or this, this uncertainty of what happens when you die. Because direction, we're, we're headed in, in a direction before we die. And so we talk about in Buddhism being born in hell, which, well, that would be a bad thing. Being born in heaven, which sounds like a wonderful thing. Talk about being born as an animal or a ghost. A Brahma, even. And all of these seem like destinations, but they're actually... I mean, conventionally they are that, but in ultimate reality, they're much more just a direction we're headed in. You can be in hell as a human being. A lot of people can attest to that. And you can be divine on earth as well. You can be a, a heavenly, uh, an angelic presence on earth. If that's the direction you're headed, if that's your your path, your way, I didn't want to call today's talk paths because we have talk about that more in a Buddhist concept, in a Buddhist context. But the direction refers to the sense of the quality of your mind. So there are six directions one can head in, and these sort of categorize the quality of one's mental state, the habitual quality, let's say. And these are the direction towards hell, the direction towards being a ghost, the, the direction towards the animal realm, the direction towards the human world, the direction towards heaven, the direction towards the Brahma world. What do we have? We got hell, ghost, animal, human, heaven, the Brahma world, those are the six directions. There's a seventh direction, but 
it's not exactly a direction per se. It's you could say it's the inward direction, and that's the, the inclination towards nibbana, towards freedom. And it's not quite a direction because it's not headed anywhere. It's the giving up of the wandering on. So when we talk about hell, well, there are apparently places that are hell, where you're tortured for thousands, thousands of years, potentially. But there's a there's a way of being that's related to that state of being tortured. And of course, you can be tortured horribly on earth as well, which also relates generally to being a result of that direction generally from past lives or you know it's it's complicated as to what leads us where but you can see in in this world there are people who are hellish whose whole state is just twisted and tortured and inclined towards pain a person who deserves for lack of a better word to be punished I don't know yeah I think so Buddhism does have a sense of people deserving this or deserving that no? we often are discouraged by the fact that people don't seem to get what they deserve that's hard to see what getting what we deserve but we do in fact often get what we deserve people who are mean and nasty often do suffer because of it, are often punished in various ways. Others punish them. Others say not bad things about them. They chastise themselves sometimes. And they go to a bad place. Their direction is, is towards hell. Anger. Anger is the quality of mind that leads towards hell. The direction towards being a ghost. Greed is what leads to be reborn as a ghost. And you can see this with people who are addicted terribly to substances, drugs, alcohol, even just sensual pleasures. They start to waste away. They become less and less satisfied because of their desire, as opposed to getting what you want and being satisfied by it. The more they get what they want, the less satisfied with it they are. The ghost is depicted as a being with a very large stomach and a very small mouth, which is apt, really. Because they're always hungry. The more you get what you want, the smaller your mouth gets, the bigger your belly gets, the bigger your stomach, the more hungry you become, the less pleasure you can get. That's how the brain works, actually. The more you get what you want, the less able the brain is to make you happy because of it. And you can actually read about the science of it. 
hungrier and hungrier. You see people like this even on earth. It's the direction you're headed. You don't have to believe in re in being born in, in the, the ghost, in the, the existence of ghosts. It's not really necessary. You know, ghost is not something that we pick out of a hat, out of left field saying, oh yeah, by the way, ghosts exist. It really is in line with the direction many beings are headed in. If there is birth, then certain people are destined to be, are most likely destined to be born as such beings. Direction towards becoming an animal is delusion, ignorance, arrogance, conceit, those sorts of things. Animals are muddled in their minds. Their real fault is their lack of mental capacity. We say a dog is very smart when it can sit or fetch or roll over. But if an adult human were to do those same tricks, you'd kind of be disappointed in them, I think. But you can see this even in, in the human world. People who are not interested in mental development, who seem averse to it, in fact, doing everything they can to, to sully their quality of their mind, intent on mindless activities, mindless gossip. I can ima I imagine that birds, in general, birds are the sort that engage in mindless chatter. Have you ever seen birds chattering to each other? It's got to have been a habit they learned somewhere. I mean, it's not that, it's of course not that Every animal you see was a human in their last life, right? And so there's very few humans compared to how many animals there are in the world still. So mostly they're just born animals again and again and again. It's probably more likely that you could say this and that human were an animal in one of their recent lives. And so if they're chirping all the time as humans, it's quite likely that's the direction they were already inclined towards, chirping. Maybe they were a bird. People just sleep all day and sleep and eat. And when they wake up, they're mean and vicious. Maybe they were a cat in their past life, that sort of thing. The way to be born a human being is related to the five precepts. The first four precepts are called the Manusa Dhamma. They're, they're sort of the differentiation between humans and animals. The fifth one, of course, is, is 
it's not exactly related to being a human, but it's one of the, it's, it's maybe even more directly harmful to the mind than the other four because of how directly it affects one's state of mind. So generally the five precepts, if you're not keeping the five precepts, if you don't have any inclination towards keeping the five precepts, and if you're if if the evil you perform, the quality of your unwholesome acts transgresses the five precepts, the magnitude of your unwholesomeness goes beyond the five precepts, and it's not very like it's not likely you'll be reborn as a human being. That's sort of the way of the line to, to judge by if you're concerned about being born one of the lower realms you can relate it to the five precepts and see how you're doing killing, stealing, lying, cheating taking drugs and alcohol these are sort of the gateway and if you're keeping them, well bravo that's probably a big reason why you were born a human in the first place You don't have to do much more than that to be born a human, which of course is, I mean, it's a, it's a great and wonderful accomplishment, but it's not heaven by any means. We suffer a lot generally as human beings. I mean, relatively little, but still also relatively a lot compared to, compared to say, the heavens. If you're born as an angel, to be born as an angel, there's you need to perform what is called mahakusala. Mahakusala means good deeds. You have to actually do something good. Even just keeping one of the precepts like like vigilantly can can potentially lead to be born in in heaven. But I'm not really talking today about being born in these places. I'm talking about the direction because being born here or there can be quite arbitrary well, quite chaotic or random. Depends how you are when you die, you know. Given our mood swings as beings, if you're having an off day and then you die, you could be uh, un unjustly, to some extent, born in an unhappy place. That's scary. We're talking about directions. You don't. You don't deserve to be in heaven unless you're a really good person. Unless you're engaged in charity, you're engaged in like high-level morality where you're fastidious about the precepts and not just not killing but also not harming. You're compassionate towards others in terms of not wanting them to suffer. Thoughtful, considerate, caring, supportive, and pure, you know, most of all pure. You do things with pure intentions, not egotistically or greedily or angrily, bitterly. One thing that, that isn't a factor is happiness and suffering. We talked about this this morning. 
Someone who's very happy isn't necessarily going on to happiness. Someone who's suffering a lot isn't necessarily going on to a bad place. Someone can suffer their whole life and suffer terribly when they die and still go to heaven. Depends very much on their state of mind. And someone who is very happy can, when they die, go to a very bad place because of their state of mind, right? Greed and anger. Of course, a person who suffers is potentially, is probably more likely to, to suffer from anger if they do suffer. And a person who is happy is more likely to suffer from greed if they suffer. But either way, happiness and pleasure and pain, anyway, are not factors in any of this. And that's a very that's probably a more important teaching than all of this that I've talked about is that happiness pleasure doesn't lead to pleasure and pain doesn't lead to pain. They're not wholesome or unwholesome. They're they are resultants. Depends what we do with them. That's an important teaching for meditators as well. The sixth, uh, the sixth direction is the direction of the Brahmas, the way of being relating to the Brahma world. And this is meditative, what we normally think of as meditation, absorption, trance, transcendence, where a person leaves behind ordinary experience. This is a lot of spirituality is related to this. Moksha. People think of it as liberation. Uh, oneness with the universe. Becoming one with everything. It's what people describe Buddhism as being, which is, couldn't be more incorrect. Buddhism is not about becoming one with anything. Buddhism isn't about becoming. So that, that realm requires meditation. That's pretty simple. And the seventh um direction is unlike any of the other directions as i said it's not really a direction it's a simplification of experience so that there is no inclination there is no direction one stops coming and stops going nibbana isn't a place unlike the other six directions which lead to a, a different realm nibbana doesn't um the, the direction related to Nibbana doesn't lead in any lead to any place. Nibbana isn't a place. It leads to stopping. The Buddha said to Angulimala, I have stopped. It is you who should stop. What we stop is we stop reacting. We stop proliferating, we stop extrapolating on our experience. Seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing. It's a very simple thing. And it prevents, it It, it rejects the going in any direction. It abandons, gives up, lets go of any kind of going or coming. So this is how at the moment of death, uh, over, oversimplified perhaps, but this is how at the moment of death, basically, there comes to be no further birth. Because 
the continuation of becoming relates to this heading in some direction, some kind of ambition or inclination. And without that, there is the breaking apart of this perpetual or perpetuation of experience. Anyway, some thoughts on this whole idea and, and sort of a, if anything, just wanted to provide this, this perspective that what we're not we're not talking about being born in this realm or that realm. Buddhism is much more about the direction you're headed, which encompasses both this life and what we might call the next life. If you're headed in a certain direction, you don't have to have any faith about what that's going to result in. It's pretty clear what the, those direct different directions are going to result in, even up to the seventh direction, which leads to freedom. So that's the Dhamma for today. On to questions and answers. Okay, let's begin. While meditating, I feel a vibration and tingling sensation on my left scapula, left triangular bone. What does it mean? It means there's a feeling of, of vibration. Meaning seeking is not a part of mindfulness. So getting back to what I was just saying about the direction or the path to Nibbana, we might say, these are all paths in and of their own. But the path to Nibbana involves abandoning any kind of meaning-making things don't well it, making things mean something creates a narrative and creates a direction vibration doesn't mean anything it means there's vibration what which nature whose nature is impermanent suffering and non-self the nature of which is impermanent suffering and non-self. It's those three things. Not stable, not satisfying, not controllable. And that doesn't say much. I mean, that just means it's not worth anything. It's, it's got nothing special. No special quality or meaning whatsoever. Not worth your time. Worth your time to make it not something you find worth your time. So we do take everything so we don't ignore things it's important not to ignore things because otherwise there is meaning making you allow the meaning making we don't want that we want to prevent that so cut uh, cut it off instead of making any meaning remind yourself quickly uh, immediately decisively that it's just a feeling so you'd say feeling feeling Should I note sad, anxious, expecting, or just focus on the raw body sensations of those emotions, such as feeling and thinking, for the accompanying thoughts? Emotions don't have bodily sensations. There are accompanying bodily sensations, but you shouldn't just... There, there's, there's no... 
I mean, in general, there's never any... Um, preference given to any of the objects of experience. So th there is no real answer to your question. It's not either or. It really is whatever is clearest. And even that doesn't matter. It's not like you could ever pick the wrong one. But whatever is more prominent, try and note that. But to be clear, sad and anxious are not physical. They are mental. They are separate from the physical sensations. If there is sensations, they are not the sensations of those emotions. They could be sensations caused by those emotions. But they are distinct. They're not the same thing. And that's important. It's important to be able to distinguish one thing from another thing and note things accurately. But pick whichever, whichever is most... Uh, prominent. I see spirits after meditating for some time. I saw even some people who did good deeds and are still roaming around their families. What is the way to avoid it and get liberation? Well, you can't avoid things and get liberation. Avoiding things doesn't lead to liberation. Avoiding just leads to avoidance, aversion, fear, that sort of thing. You don't actually see spirits. I mean, you do, but from a meditative, from a mindfulness perspective, the way of describing that is there's an experience of seeing. Seeing is just seeing. So you remind yourself, you say to yourself, seeing, seeing. If there's any reaction to what you see, meaning making, that sort of thing, you note that as well, like liking or disliking or worry or fear, that sort of thing. But we don't avoid things that if you if you want to be liberated, you have to be able to face everything. But face what's actually there. There's no spirits there in ultimate reality, just like there's not a person there when you see a person. There's just seeing. When you can face that and when you can experience just seeing, that's the path to freedom. You're meditating for an hour. My body feels sleepy and tired. The inertia and sleepiness feels satisfying and permanent. How can this sloth and torpor be overcome in such cases with wrong view? I mean, I can see satisfying, but permanent? I mean, and if it's not permanent, it's not satisfying, but that's really not, not so clear. But permanent, how can it be permanent? If it, if it arises, it has to cease, right? Otherwise, you'd still feel sleepy. So I don't know where you get the idea of permanent. Permanence is only something we can really think of in terms of the, like the self or something, our mind being permanent. To really see impermanence, you have to study the mind because that's where we find impermanence. We find permanence. We think of permanence like I'm permanent, I'm lasting. But sleepiness? Permanent? Like like you have it all the time, 24 hours a day? No, because you say after you meditate, it feels that way. But perhaps what you mean is stable in the sense of even when you note it, it doesn't go away. The truth is that everything goes away a moment, the moment when we're not paying attention to it. You, you don't, it, for example, it was there before you noticed it was there, most likely. The, the state of the body. 
but when you notice it then there's the experience of it and it's the experience that makes things real we think of it as being there but it's not really there in any real sense until there's an experience so that experience is the uh, the, the soil in which reality works without the moment of experience there isn't it isn't really real you see so it is impermanent it is momentary because it's dependent on you experiencing it which which is momentary it's just that every time you go back you say oh yeah it's still there but but it's not really there it's only there there when you are actually experiencing it you see and those experiences are momentary that's what you start to see in meditation that takes some time to see um but Again, we're not really trying to overcome things. For things like the hindrances, there is a practical trying to, to overcome them. Just be, be clear that, practically speaking, you're trying to work towards mitigating or minimizing them. And there's lots of ways you can deal with that, like stand up and do walking meditation or do some chanting or that sort of thing, splash water on your face even. Or just noting tired, tired. But mindfulness is just about facing and even facing the hindrances. And the best way to deal with them in general and help them balance, help your mental faculties balance out to, to, to really do away with the hindrances. Yeah, it just involves facing them, being patient with them. I don't quite know. I guess your wrong view is you're referring to the view that it's satisfying and and permanent. Um, so, to be clear, it's most likely some pleasure involved with lying down, perhaps, that is viewed as satisfying. Um, it's not. I mean, there's liking of it, and there's pleasure involved with it. And it's not a terrible thing, of course, to lie down and enjoy the pleasure. It's just, it's addictive, and so it actually is disturbing. And it doesn't make you happier as an individual, right? It makes you actually more miserable. It's hard to see that pleasure and desire for the pleasure doesn't actually make you happier. It actually makes you less and less happy. People who sleep more and lounge around tend to get less and less satisfied by it. And more and more addicted to it. Just the nature of... I mean, it takes time to see, but even just a little reflection will show you that you're not actually right but to act to to clearly see it well that takes a lot of work it can take lifetimes in meditation is it okay and not habit forming to be as angry as you actually are as long as one stays mindful and doesn't feed it yeah i mean the thing about anger is it's mostly fleeting and most of what you think of as anger is just going to be headache and pain and heat and and so on if you know when we're really angry it keeps coming back momentary again and again and again but um yeah you just when you just have to be mindful every time you're angry and then be mindful of the tension in the body and and it can be quite quick coming back again and again it's just noted every time it comes back but but we're only angry fleetingly it's just obsessive i mean it's a feedback loop often when 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 we develop this habit without any meditation to to break it apart uh, there's there's anger and then there's thinking about what made you angry and then more anger and we're, we're 
good at feeding this loop. One leads to the other and to the other, back and forth and back and forth, and builds and builds and builds until we explode, right? But it's still momentary. Anger leads you to think more about what you're angry about, to make yourself more angry. We feed into it. But it's still just momentary. And if you break up that chain, you really, it just dissipates. I mean, it keeps happening again and again. You have to slowly, that the, the, the real thing is the changing of the habit, which is not instant. So you're you're going to have the proclivity or the inclination to become angry again and again, no matter how mindful you are. And so you just have to keep catching it. It's never good to be mindful, but or to be angry. But when you're mindful of it, you don't feed you don't feed into it, as you say. So so it's um it's not so much about allowing yourself to be angry. Because that's not how it works. Anger is a is a habit. It's about the best thing would be to catch yourself before you're angry when something that would make you angry arises and you note it. And then there's no anger as a result where there normally would be. Eventually you get to that. But second best is when the anger comes up, that is a bad thing. It is a problem. There's no getting around that. You've you've that's an unwholesome, karmically potent mind state. But when you stop it, when you cut it off, you say angry, for example, then there's not more anger that would be even worse and, and stronger, right? And and habit forming. So you're still slowly tearing it apart and breaking it down. I am afraid that meditation will take me away from worldly pursuits. I feel like my family will be very disappointed in me. Should I continue to practice? Um, no, no, because worldly pursuits are meaningless. Worldly pursuits and people's disappointment. Uh, I mean, worldly pursuits are meaningless. People's disappointment is meaningful, but as a negative thing, you know, expectations are a cause for disappointment, not you doing this or doing that. When we don't live up to people's expectations, it's not us that's to fault for their disappointment, it's their expectation that's at fault. So, I mean, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life, but technically, no, it's not your fault and, and it's inevitable. If they're not disappointed now, they're going to be disappointed later. Expectations are a cause for disappointment. That's all. There's no good that comes from it. Just greed, desire, and lots of delusion usually, like clinging to self and so on. But, you know, well, I mean, worldly pursuits are meaningful in terms of keeping you alive and allowing you to continue to head in the right direction but beyond that they're not good in and of themselves they're not meaningful uh, yeah, having a family is tough because they're usually not on the same path as you often headed in different directions but that doesn't make it right just because people are headed in the wrong direction doesn't mean you should follow them. I mean, just because people around you 
expect you to take a certain direction doesn't mean it's right. I've recently been getting back into meditation, but with my ADHD, it's getting harder to sit still and be mindful of my surroundings. Any tips? Try doing lying meditation. I mean, practically there's things you can do. Lying meditation is a good one. Sitting very comfortably, for example, to relax yourself. But I mean, those are, all, those are, those are good things to do when you have ADHD, but ultimately, I mean, the things to grow out of as you get better at it. And, and at the same time, understand that meditation is meant to be challenging. You know, it being hard is actually a good sign. It's a sign that you're not avoiding things. It's a sign that you're probably starting to sort of, in some way, face things, at least uh, on a basic level. But, but yes, face, starting to face things and, and doing something good. Talk this morning about a person who is with tears in their eyes, following the holy life, following the righteous path or pure life, such a person goes to heaven. It's not necessarily the pain that you feel. Pain and, and discomfort isn't a sign that you're headed in the wrong direction. It's what you do with it, but you can't control. You can't just do away with your ADHD. So a big part of it is going to be uh, resigning yourself to the fact that ADHD is, a, at least for now, a part of your practice, something that you'll have to use as an object of mindfulness rather than try to avoid it or fix it. The thought of emptiness from the eradication of my defilements interrupts my meditation. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts aren't important. Your thoughts are important. When there's that thought, you should say thinking, thinking. I don't know what, what you mean, what this thing is you're talking about in interrupting, but whatever it was, you probably shouldn't cling to it. If there's a thought arises, then you note thinking, thinking. Is there an emotion associated with the thought? Then you should note that as well. That is your meditation from our, from our perspective. My father is clingy with myself and my siblings. I know the Buddha stressed the importance of our duties towards our parents, but I still find that appeasing is not the right way to go. Any advice? I mean, I don't really have worldly advice uh, because I don't know what you mean exactly. I don't know the details of your situation. and. Offering advice for a detailed situation isn't great anyway. It's much better to provide general uh, practices and principles. That's sort of what the Buddha did, and it's much more useful so that you yourself can come up with the advance, the answer. Because any answer I give you is going to be artificial. I'll say, well, do this or do that. But if it's not what you would have done yourself, then you weren't there. You weren't in a place where you could, I mean, even if it was the right answer, it's not your answer. It's not coming from within, and so it's artificial. So in terms of, for example, duties towards other people and our relation, having quality relationships with other people, it really 
at its best level stems from a place of mindfulness, stems from the quality of mind that sees it as important, as, as useful, as helpful, as harmonious, and so on. But what I will say is that a clue is that, well, that, first of all, that, that uh, acknowledgement of the duties has to be based on mindfulness, but also that duties are always going to be um, subordinate to to uh, our state of mind and our, our, our spiritual practice. That being said, appeasing people isn't always wrong, and having a having a, a view that something is right or wrong isn't necessarily right, isn't necessarily accurate. So be careful about falling into any view. And sometimes being patient with other people is a very good practice, sometimes. On the other hand, sometimes avoiding and staying away from people, finding solitude can be a good practice. The most important, mindfulness is a good practice. And that's what will allow you to start to see the best way to relate to people because it's going to depend, it's going to be a momentary thing where every moment that you deal with people you have to have the right answer, not what is the right answer to this overarching situation. Situation doesn't exist, there's only moments that exist. Dealing with those moments, I can't give you the answer, I can just tell you how to find the answer through practice. Which Mahasi Sayadaw books would you recommend for someone, not necessarily a beginner, but early on the path? Well, all of them, really. I don't recommend the Manual of Insight to newcomers. I think you should have to do some intensive practice before you start to read that. I mean, some of it's basic, and a lot of it's just basic stuff, but some of it's a little more advanced and better for people who already have the practical experience. Otherwise, they, they get too bookish, and they start to analyze all their experiences and all their practice. You don't want to study too much before you have intensive practice. You've done a, a foundation course, for example. But most of the books he wrote uh, on this subject or that subject are are designed for being newcomers. I mean, I guess especially recommend the ones on Satipatthana Vipassana. Does doing wholesome deeds like dana supercharge one's progress? To liberation faster, or does it slow down one's progress because dana itself is creating deeds? Well, progress to liberation relates to experiences, so you don't do, you can't do dana or do deeds. There's only experiences and moments of experience, and so dana provides a catalyst for the cultivation of wholesome deeds, and because the wholesome mind states are supportive of meditation, so. Generally, what we call doing dana is good, but it very much relates to your state of mind when you do it. 
but but generally you don't have to worry too much about that generally having an inclination to do dana and actually doing it it's a great support for your practice at that at the very least it makes it easier to practice all good deeds do that i am going through an intense betrayal and it's making it hard to practice the anger and sadness and longing is so strong. What should I do? Samatha, maybe? No, no, just use mindfulness. Something being strong isn't, isn't, doesn't make it different from being weak. So if there's a strong experience or a weak emotion, weak or strong emotion doesn't matter. It's harder, of course, to be patient with uh, strong emotions, but hard isn't a problem. Just be patient with it. Practice as you can. Mindfulness is your best answer, for sure. If, if things are overwhelming, lying down is often good. We're just saying overwhelmed, overwhelmed. How long should one meditate per day? Well, you only meditate moments at a time, so formal meditation is, I mean, I can't put a number on it, but it's good to do a good amount per day as, as much as you can comfortably. But you can be mindful in between formal practices as well, and that's meditation. I mean, it's not meditation in the classic sense, but we call it meditation because we don't have a better word for it. It's mental development. It's the development of mindfulness and in, and clarity of mind so developing this clarity of mind is something that you can do all the time you mentioned that pain was not physical so is pain mental or what is it well i mean there is something called physical pain but it's it's not it's not real per se i mean think about what pain is from a physical perspective it's just a, a what a firing of of synapses or something no wait uh neurons i don't know the the, the nerves nerve system nervous system so what is the difference between pain and pleasure right it's not physical you can describe it, and scientists describe it in physical terms, but they're not really saying anything. They're just talking about atoms colliding, or, or you know, subatomic particles even. Atoms and molecules colliding and interacting. Uh, the actual feeling is, is mental. So you can talk about physical pain and say, Yes, this is clear that this is pain, but it's just an arbitrary sort of measure until you talk about the mind. It's why doctors still have to ask, do you feel pain, right? Different people can experience the same physical experience with varying degrees of pain. And that's something remarkable that you see, that when you are mindful, if you can, when you become skilled in it, you'll find there are times where the pain just breaks down and there's only tension left. Nothing physical changed, but something mental changed.
Many religious texts speak about listening to one's heart when taking critical decisions in life. How can we listen to our heart? So, funny thing, in Thailand they have a saying called Tam Jai, uh, which means following your heart, literally. Tam means follow, Jai is heart. And it's not generally considered a good thing. We say in the West, follow your heart. When they say Tam Jai in Thai, it actually, it's like, do what you want. When you tell someone, when a parent tells their child, eh, do what you want. Like, you're not going to listen to me anyway. It's more often we'll hear, don't follow your, don't just follow your heart. Tam Jai means follow your, uh, your spur of the moment idea kind of thing. Without you know, without any consideration, without any concern over whether it's it's a right inclination, it's important. In the West, we're more like, ah, you want to do it, do it, and that's because we have very little religious, spiritual, wholesome training as a culture. We're taught that if some if you think something's right for yourself, if it's right for you, it's right for you, kind of thing, which really says nothing. It's it says that you know if you decide you want to kill people, and that's your path as a serial killer, then, well, that's right for you, if that's right for you. But even if it's something that's not harming other people, it doesn't mean it's right for you. I want to go and get drunk every night and pass out. Well, if it's right for you, follow your heart. <laughs> Don't listen to your heart. Well, listen, I suppose, but listen to everything. And they have another saying in Thai called... Uh, which basically means when you hear something at the ear, keep it at the ear. It means uh, don't take things to heart, I guess we would say in English. Let hearing stop at the ear, which is I mean, it's a very Buddhist sort of saying. Hearing is just hearing. If someone calls you a buffalo, my teacher said, if someone calls you a buffalo, just turn around and see if you have a tail. If you don't have a tail, you're not a buffalo. Buffalo is a big insult in Thailand. Because, well, cow, basically, we would say in English. It's like calling someone a cow, but the the connotation is that you're stupid when someone calls you a buffalo. You're ignorant, you're, you're very low intelligent or low class kind of thing. So rather than following, I mean, listening just means hearing it out, like a judge. But a judge has to be impartial. They can't just follow whatever they experience. So the idea of listening to your heart implies following it. But like when we say you listen to, you never listen to me. Oh, I listen. I just don't follow, right? The kids listen to you. They just don't follow, can't follow because of their defilements. Maybe someday they'll actually follow. But they always listen. They can't help but listen because they can't close their ears off. Fang hu wai hu, when hearing, let hearing just be hearing. And the same goes with all, with your heart. No, Listen to your heart, but it doesn't mean we should listen to it in terms of following it. Take critical decisions. You have to have a clarity that will allow you to 
see what is the right decision, impartial and, and independent from what you want to do, because you can never really trust what you want to do. It might be the right thing, but it very well might not be. And doing it because you want to do it is usually a bad thing because it builds the habit of wanting, etc. But no, following your heart is sort of, I think, a, a decidedly, I want to say Western, but it's at least only a part of it. It's an ignorant philosophy, following your heart, I would say, from a Buddhist perspective. Because from a Buddhist perspective, that's never a good idea. I mean, it's never a good philosophy, following your heart. It can be a good idea, it depends. It's just not because that's what your heart's telling you to do. It's just your heart telling you what to do is not actually a good reason for doing things. But it could be the right thing to do. It has to be something that you see clearly is the right thing to do. Or by seeing clearly, it doesn't really matter what you do because you can't act in such a way that is harmful. We've crossed the hour. There are a couple more questions in the top tier. Do you have time to answer two more? Mm -hmm. It's a long one. Yeah, just a moment. Huh. If I experienced psychosis and great fear of samsara from intensive noting, should I push myself to keep noting, knowing it will come and go, or should I take a short break? Try lying down. It's a good sort of catch-all for things that are overwhelming and tense. But yeah, you can take a break for sure. There's no, no shame in that. It's just um, taking a break sometimes leads to avoidance. And, you know, great fear isn't a problem. I don't I don't know that you can experience psychosis. I think you might be using the wrong term. I don't I'm not a psychiatrist or anything, but psychosis is something I as I understand it, something that is ingrained in your mind. I mean it's just something that that isn't caused by circumstance. You probably experienced a neurosis, although and they do talk about psychotic episodes, so I'm probably wrong, but I, I like to separate it into those two categories anyway. There's something that is sort of ingrained although i guess from a buddhist perspective that's not even proper but you could say ingrained in a physical level like a chemical imbalance in the brain whatever that means i mean that's even misleading but something like that where there's actual like schizophrenia or so on it's clear that schizophrenia seems to come from a physical basis of some sort generally um, and, and on the other hand, something that comes from habit in this life, just because of activities, mind, mental activity. So mindfulness doesn't cause those things. Um, now, when you talk about intensive noting, you may be talking about intense noting, because intensive and intense are two different things, and you should never do anything intensely. But intensive just means systematic, repeatedly, without break, relentlessly kind of thing. It doesn't mean that you just push and push and push harder and harder, faster and faster, forced, forced or that sort of thing. It doesn't, shouldn't be intense. It should be relaxed, patient. Noting shouldn't be an a intense experience. It can be stressful. I mean, it can be 
feel stressful because you're facing things that are stressful, but shouldn't actually increase the stress. So you maybe have to adjust a little bit and be a little bit more laid back about it, patient about it, peaceful about it. So, I mean, your 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 question is kind of um, indicative of this, that, that you're pushing yourself. Should I push myself? Uh, so it sounds like you probably were pushing yourself, and that's a big part of the problem. But no, you should never push yourself. It should be patient and delicate. Mindfulness is kind of like a tightrope walking, or it's like walking on thin ice. Or tightrope walking, I suppose. You have to be very careful. And you quickly fall off. And you have to get back on and try again carefully, carefully. I mean, it's not scary like tightrope walking. It's like low, low tightrope walking. You just fall off and you have to get back on again. Riding a bike, maybe. I've been doing vipassana for a year. Recently, I experienced suffering in everyday situations. I feel uncomfortable and restless. I don't feel comfortable with family. Is something wrong? I mean, a lot of meditation or mindfulness feels like withdrawal. I mean, it is withdrawal because we, we begin to stop seeking out pleasure. There's nothing wrong with pain. There's nothing a lot wrong with suffering. Suffering has a cause, and it's that cause that is wrong. I mean, mindfulness doesn't cause suffering, but it, and on the other hand, doesn't avoid it. it. Doesn't find ways to fix suffering, because it doesn't see suffering as the problem per se. It's only the problem because of the cause. And it is. It isn't the 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 focus of the solution. I mean, fixing suffering, getting rid of suffering isn't the practice. Seeing suffering clearly is the practice. That's the first noble truth, to fully understand suffering. So facing that is important. That's all it is. I mean, this is discouraging for a lot of new meditators. They feel like meditation is actually making them more unhappy. But you can quickly, quickly see that that's not true, that you've just been avoiding things, that you li we live normally trying to fix suffering and, and immediately change and remove any suffering from our lives. So we're constantly, constantly living in fear of these things. Mindfulness just allows you to face them, forces you to face them, and start to change that attitude so you're no longer living in fear, you're no longer... Uh, under the power of change. You no longer uh, batted about, you no longer tremble at the at the worldly dhammas, good things, bad things, the vicissitudes of life. That's the end of our questions for today. Okay, sadhu. Thank you all. Good questions.
Wish you all the best. Thank you, Chris and Ulu and Rahid. We have a new a new team member this week. 